Well, let's thank God. Dear Lord, we're grateful for this time in your word and the good lives you've given us. We'd ask that we would be faithful to your calling. In your son's name, amen. Well, we're in chapter John, chapter John of verse 4. <laughs> chapter 4 of First Epistle of St. John. Um, oh, this is a this is a nice tidy little thought. Um, it's one. It's a it's a section that reminds us that you need to read the whole book. You need to follow how he defines things. You need to keep the book held together as context. That's we've noticed that already a little bit, but in this chapter, it's important. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are of God, for many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit which confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit which does not confess Jesus is not of God. This is the spirit of Antichrist, of which you heard that it was coming, and now it is in the world already. Well, what happens, and I remember this back from the Jesus Freak days, verses like some of these are, uh, become incantational. They become, um, people were testing the spirits left and right. Now the testing of the spirits, the testing of the spirits is a, um, the uh, the testing of spirits is uh, um, sounds magical, but it doesn't seem like he's thinking about testing spirits like you're dealing with exorcism and you're trying to figure out which demon this is or whether or not this spirit. But he seems to be viewing spirits as the people, at least it's the spirits of the people, the false teachers here, so you have to test the, uh, test the spirits, and, uh, um, and so it's probably going to have, a, a, first off, a, a rather mundane expression, it's not going to be this moment in the, the candlelit room where the magic powers of, of, of the Christian are held up to stop the bad-spirited uh, false prophets. But the test is pretty simple. By this you know the Spirit of God. You're, you're um, needing to test. That's first off. It's a, um, uh, I know too many Christians that, out of some embarrassment socially, or, well, that's just not done, aren't we just supposed to assume that everybody says they're, you know, in the camp are <laughs> just to believe every teacher um, uh, end up sounding like those women in in Second Timothy is it that well, they'll listen to anybody and what was the uh, I was just reading it eh? I just used it uh, warning against you yeah yeah that's exactly for among them are those who make their way into households and capture weak women burdened with sins and swayed by various impulses who will listen to anybody and can never arrive at a knowledge of the truth. 
And that's just a, you know, we want to go obviously deal with false teachers there as well. But an awful lot of Christians are shocked that you would say, you know, say in the public arena that Mormonism is not Christian. Well, also the problem is, well, we've got a problem here with Mormonism because they believe Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. Every spirit which confesses Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. And that's the danger of the incantational. This is sort of a, uh, people love to have, not only love to have a bunch of things that they're supposed to do as Christians, but the full text of a full universal statement that it's blanket, that it always is, always works. But it, you know, we can, no, it doesn't. Here it is. Every spirit which confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit which does not confess Jesus is not of God. Well, that should give you a hint right there. It's not a blanket universal. Um, it's a specific up against its opposite. Okay? You, you cannot, you, you could, if you say Jesus Christ is come in the flesh, contrary to the statement, Jesus Christ has not come in the flesh, that aspect, the true aspect, the Spirit of God is on the side of Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, not the contrary. But it's not a universal that I could say that Jesus Christ isn't God, but he's come in the flesh. Well, I'm, I'm in, right? But I'm not. Um, and that's where the Mormons get going. That's where they find themselves. Oh, he's just a man who made it, but he, you know, he came and he died. He was resurrected. All the, all the, uh, not didn't have Gnostic notions that denied the Gnostics denied that Christ, who only appeared to be here, he was not actually fleshly in here. He was an illusion. Um, so that's what John is arguing, saying this is in this question, not in blanket universals, but in this question. This is the orthodox position. This is, I don't want to use that term because um, orthodox generally means whoever's in charge of that group defines what they believe as the orthodox. This is the biblical or spirit-filled position. By this you know the spirit of God. Antichrist, which he covers back in 2.22, I have it here on the side. Um, who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. So this is all tied together. The person of Jesus Christ being uh, the, the nature of what happened in the work of God being undercut. We were reading last night in Pilgrim's Regress how the, um, uh, the worldly philosophers uh, were reinterpreting the point of Jesus Christ coming and dying. That was a legend that's supposed to represent the life and death uh, interchange of all pe of all people as part of the big pantheistic whole. In other words, people love to redefine what Christ is about. They want to take away the concrete elements of the story that God worked in history. A little little children, verse four. You are of God and over and and have overcome them, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Now they are of the world, therefore what they say is of the world. And the world listens to them. Now I want you to, that, that second half of verse 4, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world, is again one of those passages people have quotable, you know, um, 
Uh, one of the things that comes up on their thought for a day calendar, uh, it's you know precious moments um, or or uh, who's the guy Haney? Um, uh, deep thoughts with Jack Handy or whatever. Jack Handy's deep thoughts. Um, and Christians have their own versions. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. But, you know, it's a great thought, but it, it's anchored someplace. You are of God and have overcome them. Notice he uses little children there uh, as he does other places. When we were back a few chat weeks ago, when we were talking about that hymn-like thing, it's not just talking about little kids. He's a believer in little children. The phrase, you are of God, and where you are is a greater position than where they are. Because you are of God, they are of the world. Okay? And that is um, the, the, uh, the point of, remember, we're all talking about how we're assured, where we stand in Christ, how we're assured about that. He is giving them an assurance that you have a connection to an agent in you that is greater than the agent that's in the world. They are of the world, therefore what they say is of the world, and the world listens to them. Now they have a, the they here, or uh, what he who is in the world, people say, oh, it's Satan, maybe, but it's probably the false teachers, the false prophets the false, uh, uh, the sources of this falseness. Uh, because, he goes on to say, they are of the world, therefore what they say is of the world. And the world listens to them. The them is going back to verse 4, he who is in the world. We have a, uh, you might say, a connection inside the faith that goes like this. We are of God, verse 6, um, you, you are of God, verse 4, uh, four Verse 6, we are of God, the apostles probably are of John's band. And in both cases, they are of God. So God is in us, and God is in you, and there's a connection there. I drew a little red line so that you would see, you are of God, we are of God. They are the world, they listen to the worldly teachers. Those who are the worldly teachers get their ear, you should be hearing us. He says this in verse 6. Whoever knows God listens to us. Okay, this is one of the assurances. And he who does not of God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. This is one of the most simple things to watch. It's watch happen. Um, Our assurance is in our, the degree of our connection, the God in us, if we are in God or of God, the assurance that we're of the Spirit and of truth is in our connection to the originators of this religion. You know, those who, from the authority of Jesus Christ, that he gave his authority to his apostles, John being one of them, and John is saying, if you listen to us, it's because you share that notion. Now, one of the big areas of um, inclusion in the faith, people wanting to say, no, you would offend me if you told me I wasn't a Christian. Oh, do you believe St. Paul about this? Do you believe St. John about that? Well, no, well, you know, that, that would be ridiculous. Or, 
Uh, no, we know better now. Or that was uh, all part of that first century. All sorts of ways of pushing their submission to the apostles aside so that they don't um, have to do it. They're just making way for them to listen to the world because you know everything they do, the world shares learning on the basis of its worldliness. And that's where Christian teaching goes when it wants to gain popularity because it wants the world to listen to them. And so they know that you can't have what St. Paul says about wives and husbands. You can't have um, a belief of the creation. You can't have you know, whatever the teaching of the apostles is regarding this. It could be something as simple as family values. I've gone up against that any number of times because the scriptures makes you set that aside for the sake of Jesus Christ. Um, whatever the thing that the world is applauding, uh, the great uh, image in uh, Pilgrim's Regress is the town of Claptrap. And the word Claptrap comes from, the reason we call it Claptrap is because someone is speaking something that's specious nonsense, but it is designed to get applause, it's a trap for applause. For clapping. So you see our president uh, saying almost non sequiturs that don't make any sense, but all have all the right words strung together, all the popular notions, all the things that women, conservatives do it too. But because they're looking for popularity, and so popularity um, uh, has to show a bond. It has to, I have to become of the world. I can't be of God if I want the world to listen to me. we have a standard of matching. If we're of God, not only when it says, yeah, I cannot say I have God and hate my brother. If I say I'm of God and I hate my brother, I'm a liar. I'm also, if I say I am of God and I don't listen to the apostles, I'm a liar. I, it says, by this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. He who is not of God does not listen to us. It's a, uh, and it's something to consider in yourself. Um, it's not just, oh, the liberals, or oh, the, the schmoozy televangelists, or the people who are trying to get a big enough crowd or make their movement popular. Um, it's not just them, it's, it's us. Are there parts of the scriptures, parts of, at least, uh, hold yourself to the, to, to Christ and the Gospels and the Apostles. You know, just say, oh, do, do I believe them when they say this? Um, and that's what my father always gets to. What does it say? Do you believe what it says? Well, you do what it says. It's very simple exegetical principles. But we often find ourselves still struggling with what we're willing to account for. We find ourselves trying like a liberal to get around certain passages. I had an email today, I haven't responded to it yet, someone from Seattle asking me to expound on a Christian's, oh, this whole Trayvon Martin case, uh, expound on a Christian's right to self-defense. You know, you're not resist an evil man, strikes you on one cheek, turn to him again the other. A lot of Christians I know have a hard time with that. I think it needs to be understood, but what does it say? Do you believe it, and will you do it? And I should 
when, when I don't find myself meeting um, uh, heart to heart with the content, where I don't start to correct myself, to adjust myself to what Paul or Peter or James said, um, I am the one that should be realizing that there's some error in me. I am not of the camp that they are of. To whatever degree, you know, I'm not going to say it's an on-off switch, you're not a Christian anymore, but you do know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error this way. And those who are in error, and those who can be sure that they know God, those, whoever knows God, listens to us. He said, little children, you are of God. You have overcome them. Um, and we have to, and then we also have to look at what the temptation rests on. How much do I, say if I was on a desert island, all by myself, have my Bible, no hope of rescue, would you just believe everything? Probably. Not because your brains are baked, but because you don't have any world to woo you away. You don't have any world to go try to please. You could say, yeah, I would turn the other cheek. Or, yeah, I think a wife should submit to her husband. Yeah, I think that uh, Jesus, God created the world in six days. That's what it says. 6,000 years ago, that's what it says. There you go. Whatever the, the, the article, you would be the, ra the most rash fundamentalist because you're alone. And that, you start to say, well, that's exactly right. I, um, all the churches I see, oh, uh, I guess Jimmy Carter has come out with a, a theological uh, guide to understanding the Bible or something like that. Just awful. I just read an article on it. You know, basically everything Jimmy Carter wants to be true is obviously what Jesus is teaching. You know, and it's gay marriage is okay, and and Jesus didn't have anything against it, and and just just nonsense. Um, but he desperately wants to be popular. He wants to be significant. Is what he wants to be. But that's what happens to us. It's not just Jimmy. It's us. Uh, it's where we don't feel that we can take a stand for, and we, it's understandable, some things you're, you're wise not to bring up as a, it's not something, a stand doesn't need to be made out of every truth in the scripture in every given moment. So you don't go to a your black friend's house and support slavery in the book of Leviticus. You don't, you don't do that. It's dumb. It was not necessary. But you're ready to make a defense for the hope that is in you. If you're ready to um, uh, say, no, that's what it says. That's what I believe. Uh, and, but you should be knowing, you, you want to find this out about yourself. Where are you with the teaching of the apostles? Um, do you, enjoy, do, do you find yourself enjoying that assurance that, yes, that which is in me is at least hearing that which is in them? It's that common, common state, that common source. And <clears throat> I'm just proving my worldliness. If I can get the ear of the world, not to have them believe the apostles too, but for me to show that I have a common, a common ground with them. Verse 7, Beloved, let us love one another. For love is of God, and he who loves is born of God and knows God. Now, this has been in the book for the first three chapters. You know, this is not 
news to us here in First John. He can't seem to shake this. Um, it, and there's a reason. Uh, it's not just that, oh, okay, John's in his dotage, he's slipping a few gears, he keeps repeating, and you know, my dad keeps telling the same stories for our edification. Um, okay, yeah, John, you're, you're aging. Hey, how many times do we need to be told this? Well, a lot more than we've been told it in John. You know, we, this is not, uh, this is not, you might say, the, you know, no matter what, at least the Christians love. No, they don't. Uh, we can't fall back on the central element of all that is Christian ethics, love, and say at least we got that right. For love is of God. He who loves is born of God and knows God. So it's not only everything that is common in God, the teaching of the apostles and our being of God makes us have a common, rational absorption of what they say. I agree with them because we have the same, we're of the same family. We have the same understanding, the same culture, the same spirit. And the same is true we are of, if God is love, we love, and this makes it we're born of God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. Everybody likes to quote that last bit, God is love. Just like they quoted that last bit, he who is in you is greater than he that is in the world. But it's he who does not love does not know God. Everything is, what is it you look like? What is it, if I were to, um, what was the old fable of the Indian blind swamis feeling the elephant, various parts of the elephant, and mm -hmm. coming back with a different report? What are, what are you going to be, what are you described as? If people say, well, the only way I can describe them is, well, they're really Christian. <clears throat> what do you mean by Christian? Well, they're really loving. Uh, you know, it's like Jesus. You know, that's, is that, is, is that how I imagine the apostles were? You know, that's, um, that's what we're looking for. Is, and here, it's a matter of all these things are confidence or doubt causing. He who does not love does not know God. Okay? Love. Hmm. Is it something you can adequately, you know, with listening to the apostles or reading the scriptures and agreeing or working something out to see whether or not it's something you want to both understand and, and assent to. Um, uh, love is, is a hard thing. We, 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 all, we are so good to ourselves in our, in our assessments. We, we like to have um, everything seems like it's either the most just or the most loving, that which we did. You know, we remember the one situation where we really gave something to somebody, and that just stands out to us. It's been one time, the guy who is a miser, I think Samuel Johnson wrote on this one time, uh, a guy who's a miser, when you start talking about his miserliness, he has one instance where he gave, you know, 10 pounds to somebody, and, they, and he has that on his resume to always pull that one moment out where he gave, but he's a miser, really. Uh, do, we, do we have this kind of, um, when we, 
We need to doubt if we are not loving. We need to doubt. We need to examine ourselves to see if we are born of God, to see if we um, match up to the God that we say we adore. In, in this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. Um, I have met countless Bible, well, countless, many Bible teachers have witnessed Bible teachers who were unloving people, who affirmed that Jesus Christ had come in the flesh and affirmed everything the apostles taught. Two of the things on this page that were assurances of, you know, in the Spirit and in the Lord, two of the things, they had them, didn't have love, were not loving people. They were doctrinaire, they were mean-spirited, they were egotistical, they were didn't care, cared for no man. Um, um, and it starts to give you the understanding that it isn't just, you, you can't just fall back on the one, one thing out of the book. It's a whole bunch of things in the book, and all of them remain true. You don't get to jump in on the one thing you got right. You don't get to say, oh, I was watching uh, 300 a couple days ago, um, Leslie was in the bathroom, so I had her on that channel. And uh, it was the scene where Ephialtes, the cripple, comes before Leonidas and he wants to fight for the Spartans. He's all crippled. And he shows him how he can jab and thrust with his spear. And, and Leonidas says, tells him to raise his shield as high as he can. And of course, he's a hunchback and he can't raise it high. And he says, look, we, our system requires all these things. You have to be able to cover your fellow soldier from the neck to the thigh with your shield. You have to uh, be able to do the three. You can't just do one thing. You've got to be able to accomplish it all. So you can't fight with us. We have to recognize all of these things and keep, you might say, that many gauges on your dashboard being read. You're looking out the altimeter, your gas gauge, you're looking at you have everything, uh, your RPMs, everything to know that you're still, uh, and it should be very clear to you when that little red light goes off, check engine or whatever it is that uh, one thing, you should be concerned. You want everything to read normal. And this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the expiation for our sins. So, not only is the, uh, this is a matter of matching uh, this evening, what do, um, what do we match up with? We match up in ideas, we match up in teachers, we match up in love, we match our God. And it's, it's critical to say, not we're not just measuring how much we are into our God, how much we love but it's how much we recognize the love of that which we seek to match. Not that we love God, but that he loved us. Because the beginning point, the truth is in God. His apostles were given authority long before I was even thought of. And they had authority and were true, and the Christ was true and did come in the flesh. Those things existed. I am a Johnny-come-lately to it. I love because of that love. 
because it was first. Um, I'm not trying to make a religion out of my love. I'm not trying to bring up love as a good thing and wouldn't be great if more people... I know, this God came into the world loving. This is why it's, it, it's not just distinct from other religions. It is the religion, and it is the religion the God wrote up, and the God expects us to match it. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No man has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. Um, the, um, there's a bunch of stuff right in here. Um, he is the expiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. This, uh, this love came down from heaven. It was the thing we desired, responded to, benefited by, and its expectation that love goes out from us. It is love that is not earned. It is not reactive. It is, it is like God's love is necessary because of his character. It is who he is, and he cannot deny himself. He loved, whether when while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So our love is, wants to match that. We love without cause, other than we are loving. That's the cause. That the, the, or the cause is God's love for us, but our love to others, we ought to love one another, is the mimicry or the imitation of that. No man has ever seen God if we love one another. God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Now there's a, a theme that has, was started back in chapter 2. I have the reference here, I think. Uh, where is it? Um, I have it two two five, 2.5, where... Um, we keep the commandments of God, and Him truly love. Anyone who keeps the commandments of God, and Him truly love for God is perfected. This is something that comes up in this chapter regarding fear and punishment a little bit later. But He said it again here in twelve. God abides in us, and His love is perfected in us. Remember that love for the Christian, this agape, this whatever you want to call it, the Romans thir uh, Corinthians thirteen, love is the fulfillment of the law, is the guide to the new covenant, is what makes us ethical, is the thing because love does not wrong its neighbor. We are kept from all the criminal acts that the law was against, all the sinful acts the law was against, because we, because we love. And that perfects the love of God. This is what makes love, a, it's a, this great perfect thing. God is love. It's a, it's a, almost a perfect quantity and uh, um, remembering what goes into that love from all the way back in the um, uh, second chapter, uh, chapter 2 5, but down to here and then a little bit later in this chapter, the idea of love being perfected when we love adequately. That's uh, when we love adequately is when how we treat our first our brother and then other people that we're expected to love.
Um, and we'll get get to that again when he gets down and down in verse 18 because it comes up again. Um, I mentioned uh, back in verse 8, well, did, I skipped over this, I wanted to mention it. In John 1, 18, the Gospel of John, when it says here in verse uh, 12, no man has ever seen God, uh, it says in, let me read that in John. It's always good to be holding the Gospel of John and, and this, uh, John 1, 18. Um, no one has ever seen God. And here it says, no man has ever seen God. So it's in the same phrase, but in John 1 it says, the only son who is in the bosom of the Father, he has made him now. So this whole thing is, is this point of connection in the quality, characteristic, metaphysical source, the root, all these things of the sameness of Christianity. What is it at the same about? What, it's not... Well, we just feel like it's so we're more liberal than you. Or you, at some point, you start being error. At some point, you start being just not a Christian. When you when you throw away these connections to the love of God, which with the conservatives would have a, a more a greater struggle with, or the doctrines of the faith, the liberals have a greater struggle with, the believing what the apostles wrote. Um, but this connectedness is me measured out to us through Christ. That God, who is unseen, was, you might say, imitated or represented. He was made known by the Son, by the Incarnation, and he even says in his ministry, I don't say anything that the Father hasn't told me to say. You know, I, that's, I am the expression. That's why John calls him the Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, the Word was God. That is, you might say, Christianity is supposed to be an integrity-filled connectedness, where the thing that is the final reflection in the last mirror looks like the thing, as close as can be imagined, that it reflected. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. So, just like with Christ, our matching is a representation. It's more than just assuring us. I'm not just going sitting with confidence in my chair, eating my cereal, going, yep, I'm going to heaven. But I'm also, like Christ, the incarnation of God. Not in the Mormon sense, but the incarnation of what God's likeness, this is what godliness is. It, it is being the God representation in this world. God's love, if we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. We are this force that, um, um, that can be seen by those that don't see. Verse 13, by this we know that we abide in him, and he in us, because he has given us of his own spirit. Now, he's probably talking about the apostles right here. And he's come out of this section, or whatever group of people, when he says back in 6, we are of God, he does go back um, and forth using the we, um, you know, freely of us all. But here it sounds like he 
is talking back again of the apostles because in 14 he says, And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son as Savior of the world. And that is um, back from the earlier part of the book, uh, what they had seen and testified to as the apostles. Um, so I think he's probably talking about um, uh, their connection with the Spirit uh, and what they have come to testify. And you should remember, believe them rather than the teachers of the world. Then he goes, but he at least immediately gets back into the rest of us, verse 15. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. Romans 10, favorite passage there. And St. Paul says, what does it say? The word is near you on your lips and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. Because if you confess with your lips that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For a man believes with his heart and so is justified and he confesses with his lips and so is saved. Now, the apostles are on the same ship here. They, they are saying that confessing that Jesus Christ is the Son of God is kind of a, um, a crucial antagonistic or an affirmation versus a denial. It's not that the phrase, Jesus is Lord, or Jesus is a magical phrase, like Paul would say, if anyone confesses Jesus is Lord, and somebody in the LDS church goes, Jesus is Lord, and the hippies, early Christian hippies, would be confused. It's not confusing because it ought not be viewed as a, um, this is a position that we take of the apostles, that we confess that Jesus is the Son of God, like the apostles taught, we are siding with those things and not with these proto-gnostics that are coming down the pike saying these other things. Paul doesn't mind when he says, you know, some people preach Christ out of desire for to desire to afflict me in my chains, you know, for base gain. But insofar as the gospel is preached, then I rejoice. But in Galatians he says. If anyone preaches the gospel other than that which I've declared to you, if an angel from God told you something different, let them be damned. I mean, it, the message, that which is true, that which they taught, even if an apostle came back and contradicted what he had said before, let him be damned. It's that important that even the, the most authoritative beings you could have access to said something different. It's damnable. So we, we, we have to read on uh, uh, the, the seriousness. I was talking to Tim earlier about wanting to put together a, um, a short video on the gospel, just stating it. Because it's not stated near enough. It's not, people don't even know what to say. If someone walked up to them and said, what must I do to be saved? They would not know. Uh, why don't you come to church with me and hope the pastor talks to them. Or, they're Christians, but they don't know how they got there. Um, but it is an affirmation of certain things. But it's all, remember, it's all that you are in Christ 
is a group of things you are in Christ, all of which must be true, all of which must be extant for you to be assured and for it to be the case. For you not to be in error, but to you be of the truth. All these things. So we know, verse 16, and believe the love God has for us. God is love, and he who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. Now, if you again, if you were taking passages out of context, and some liberal schmuck was preaching out of that verse, they could really go to town with all your misconceptions of love and God and all the rest, and they would redefine what it was all about, and, you know, we should be loving to this, that, and the other thing. But unless you're reading the whole book, you realize what John is saying and what he is meaning, what he is up against. It's the love instead of the law. The law killed love, liberated ethics for the Christian. It made it something that we could be changed into being, so we would be doing naturally the things of God. Um, it is not some, you know, crying over lost puppies. And this is love perfected with us that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so are we in this world. Again, this statement of imitation, the statement of looking like. Um, and again, he comes back to what he said back in verse 12, love perfected in us. In this is love perfected with us. So we can have confidence on the day of judgment. And that's a great place to be. A lot of people who don't even believe that, I was reading, again, one of these concepts in, in Pilgrim's Regress that has come up over the last couple of weeks was these earth, worldly philosophers that get a lot of things right, but the one thing they get wrong is the desire for the things of God is a hope that you should abandon. They said, abandon hope, don't abandon desire. You're supposed to have a lifelong desire, but don't have any hope. Don't, you can never get where you're hoping to get. You can desire it, but you can't get there. And a lot of Christians treat the life in Christ as if that sort of thing. There is, yeah, that's what we're hoping for. No, we've got to obey. You shouldn't hope for it because it'll never happen. You'll never be holy. But you should always desire it. Well, some people are going to expect that they could have confidence for the day of judgment when love is perfected in them. Because perfected love, if I have labored all my life to listen to the apostles, and listen to my God's love so that I would love others as he had loved me. And my love was slowly perfected so that whenever I could see a situation, I reacted in the, with the morality that love dictated, that ethics that love put out there, perfected love, arrived at, of course you're going to be confident for the day of judgment. That you can say, yeah, I know, he's going to say, well done, good and faithful servant. What's his name? St. Paul. 2 Timothy again, I think. Uh, For I am already on the point of being sacrificed. The time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. You want to be there. So you want to be someone who has gone through all these things and tweaked yourself honestly. 
said, you know what, how, how have I let myself go on this? How come my, my assurance would be far greater if I were far more in the Word, learning what it is I get to agree with? Because I am of God, they are of God. We're going to share the same notion. This is the objective outside stance. Not just I'm running around claiming I'm of God. I am of God and I am of the same God in the same way these men are. That's what I should be. This is the objective outside check. This is the, you have a subjective feeling of how you feel. The spirit in you is one thing. But this anchors you as to what it is you're talking about. This defines it as Christianity. Because as he is, so are we in this world. No man has seen God. God is in a way that we cannot apprehend. But we are that in this world. There is no fear in love. This is one of the off, out of context passages. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and he who fears is not perfected in love. And it's quoted every time I hear it in terms of, well, we've got to get rid of this fear. Love casts out fear. And they think fear is a bad thing. Now, fear is an appropriate thing. Fear has a certain task. It says right here, it has to do with punishment. It's the right circumstance for certain conditions. When your, my kids were going to get spanked, they feared. They had disobeyed, they feared. It was right that they feared. If they didn't fear, something was wrong. Either the spankings didn't hurt, or they were stupid. But fear was exactly what the doctor ordered, and yes, they should. But in the Christian ethics, perfect love casts out fear, fear being the, the sense of threat, the, the, the all-powerfulness of God and his righteous judgments. Perfect love, remember, what has, what has made perfect love? All the way back from early part of chapter 2, it is being righteous, loving, keeping his commandments, because I love, um, that's what, and when I got really good at it, when I got perfected in this loving, I could stand with confidence and not be afraid because I was holy. That's, uh, that's what you're saying. Yes, there is no fear in love, but holiness casts out, there is no fear in holiness because holiness casts out fear. You could say that. That's the nature of the Christian ethical system. Um, So what do you do with <clears throat> the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom? Um, Jesus Christ saying, don't fear him who can kill the body, but fear him rather after he is killed and can cast both body and soul into hell. Well, fear there had to do with punishment. Uh, who can cast both body and soul into hell? Consciousness of the threat. Because in the presence of God, this all-powerful being reaching down to do something to you. And he's either going to pinch your head off or he's going to uh, bless you in some sort of way. And you're moving from fear to love along that gradient of head pinched off to blessing, you know. Um, and there is the standing in the presence of the thing feared without the fear. Uh, I've described it uh, using this painting many times. So uh, it's like having a sturdy hand railing standing next to Ni Niagara when I'm secure and the thing I 
naturally would fear I'm secured in, in this case, by the love I have, by the perfection of love, the sublime sense of God is overwhelming. It, it makes the religious moment intense, if you're looking for religious moments. We love because he first loved us. It goes back, echoing what he said earlier, we did not love, but we love one another because God first loved us. Um, we love because he first loved us. Remember to, to say, I'm proving in my Christianity, the assured thing is I have a natural connection, not the institution of the church down from the apostles, not my belonging to the groups, my organic, real, I look like my parents sort of thing. And when the, you know, the little oriental kid is in his white family, they don't have to tell him they're adopted. They'll figure it out. They're not really your kids. Now, we want to be sure that we're looking at this I'm looking like quality. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. Back from chapter 1. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, that he who loves God should love his brother also. And what I was thinking of this, because we covered it earlier on the nature of the lie, the nature of the connection there, out of chapter 1. But here, I was thinking, you know, he's telling you directly that your immediate circumstances of love are the beginning point of proof. You cannot go to the ethereal, oh, I really love God, I really love Jesus, and going out disobeying him. <laughs> Where the, your ethereal moments, your religious expressions, all those things are easy to say about that which you haven't seen. It's an intellectual claim about something further off. And that intellectual claim can only believed, be believed by you as it is verified in the immediate actual claims. Now, the adage by P.J. O'Rourke, everybody wants to save the world, but nobody wants to help mom do the dishes. Um, everybody likes that distant, impossible, utopian, let's go, let's go change the world because it's not as tawdry as doing something kind and good right now, right here, to the person who is unpleasant right next to you. That's, but that's where the test is. If you can't love the person you can see, you can't claim to love that which you can't see. Love by, um, in a sense, the love that is real would have to be um, particularly... There has to be this possibility of reception of of the kindness. So, um, what does it define it as in Corinthians thirteen? Love is patient and love is kind. And really, you know, um, those sorts of things. I could talk about Jesus and the and glory and the hereafter and all that. All I want and how much it makes me feel good. I can have all sorts of fondnesses for all the future that God has for me, even all the kindness he has given to me, I can have good feelings, but love being patient and kind really needs that brother right in front of you, needs that person there 
that you're either treating well and patiently and kindly uh, or not. And that's the test. You would say, of this, uh, how am I going to test this? We could look at it in God's love. We've made manifest to us um, that God sent his son into the world. And this is the love of God made manifest among us that God sent his son into the world. We can look at it theologically, historically. Look at that over there. That's a great example of it. I'm supposed to be like that. Um, and it's something that uh, I really has to be occurring in me immediately. Uh, by immediacy, I'm not saying uh, in the next few seconds, I mean in the next few yards issue of distance rather than an issue of time. So that's where you, that's where you want to check. You ought to be loving if you love God. You should love his brother also. The test of whether you can say you love God is in your success or not in loving your brother. Well, it's, a, uh, it's an inner, you know, my wheels within wheels book and chapter here where a bunch of things will flip back out in earlier chapters in the book. And we got one more next week. Um, uh, but go back and look at it through, especially on the perfected love. Um, understanding what love is supposed to accomplish for the New Testament Christian and um, the nature of the completeness of the standards. By this you may be sure, by this you may be sure, by this it has to be all there. And recognizing that some of these incantational claims are really affirmations versus a particular denial. They're not a magic phrase that uh, is a, a blank universal. Okay, there's some other good things in there, but uh, take a look at this. Let's, let's thank God. Dear Lord, we're very grateful. We really appreciate the love that you have for us in sending your son. We'd ask that you would have us look at that, consider it, and realize what it is we are claiming to be when we claim to be his. We'd ask that you would direct our thoughts directly to your word to see whether or not we're in submission whether or not we're trying to be of the world or whether we're trying to be of you and your son and his apostles. We ask that you would also um, set that example of love for us so that we um, would see the point and the goodness of it. This we ask in your son's name. Amen.